Hi and hello, Watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today, I am joined by Robin Talendier, the founder of Atelier Wen, one of the most exciting new brands on the scene, because perhaps it is based in one of the less expected locations for a luxury watch brand, and that's China. So Robin, welcome to the virtual studio. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hi, Rob. I mean, thanks uh, Thanks a lot for having me today. I'm, I'm really excited to be on the show. And hi, everyone who's, who's listening to this. You know, you're speaking already to a couple of owners of your watches as it is, and a few thousand more that maybe don't yet know enough about the brand. So I alluded to the fact that you are, well, based, the brand is defined by its relationship with Chinese culture. So let's start there. What's the story behind Atelier Wen and what inspired you as a Frenchman, if I'm correct, to found a brand in China? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- thanks a lot for asking. That's a pretty long story, but I'll try to make it short and, and still a bit detailed. Um, so I started collecting watches when I was um, 14 years old. And basically what happened is that then for my birthday, my parents gave me a Seiko cross chronograph as a gift. And um, that sort of triggered something inside me. So after I received it, I started looking for watches online, trying to learn more. And very quickly, I got convinced that, well, if you want a real watch, well, it needs to be either an an automatic watch or a mechanical uh, winding watch. And so a few weeks after, I came back to my dad and I said, oh, hey, dad, can I have 500 euros to buy a Tissot, an automatic Tissot? And he basically told me to, well, uh, fuck off, because um, he thought that there was quite a bit of, of money for a 14 years old. So, well, I, I couldn't get my Tissot, but I still really wanted a mechanical watch. So I started doing more research online. And that's how I stumbled upon Chinese mechanical watches. And there was still a time where, especially for vintage ones, you could get something really decent for, I don't know, a few a few bucks, like a, a, as low as 10, 15 euros for, for a vintage one. And, uh, and I was really lucky because back then my, my parents would go to, to China fairly often. Um, so... The next summer, we went to China and I bought, I bought my, my first like Chinese mechanical watch. That was a Shanghai and then another one, another one, another one. And I, I sort of like starting, yeah, building up a, a collection of those. And at the same time, I got involved on some watch forums. I mean, watch music, which was really big back then and which was very interesting because they had a, a forum dedicated to, to Chinese mechanical watches. And uh, I befriended the, the few other like Western guys who, who were collecting that because there were not that, that many of us. And uh, and one of the big breakthrough uh, in that story is that in my first year of uni, I I won a scholarship to 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 spend the summer in in Beijing at a summer school, and there, by absolute chance, I actually stumbled upon one of the moderators of the Chinese Mechanical Watch Forum on Watch Music, who was a retired Canadian gentleman who was on, on holiday in Beijing. And uh, pure coincidence, like we we had not planned it. I had no idea he was in China, let alone in Beijing, let alone in, in the area I was like sort of hanging out in. Um, but this guy was like super, super connected. Um, and he knew the head of the sort of like Chinese chamber of watchmaking. So he introduced me and the, the next year I went back to Beijing, this time for like a year and a half of exchange studies. And this one person became my mentor and he basically took me under his wing. And for the full year and a half, we well, just spent our time like visiting all the, the big players in, in the Chinese watch industry. So the, the big movement makers, the independent watchmakers, the big dial makers, the, the big retailers, uh, a lot of craftsmen. 
and, and there, what really struck me, I mean, besides the, the quality that obviously I was aware of because I was buying those watches, was really the, the passion like that I could feel and that was exhibited by, by some of those people. And especially in big companies like, like Seagull or Danone, for instance, you know, you, you would meet those, those watchmakers who've been doing their job for decades, like 30 years, 40 years, and who would really live and, and breathe that job, like who were really, really passionate about what they were doing. And that, that really moved me. Uh, and then when I went back to Europe, I, I started telling some watch friends about that. And, and the answer I got was like, oh, I mean, don't, don't kid us. You know, like we, we very well know that in China, it's all like a bunch of sweatshops with, with kids and, and they're $1 per day. And, and I thought, well, I mean, it's, it's very different from what I experienced and, and, and from what I felt. And, and obviously, you know, like it's, it's not binary, it's not black and white, but I thought, okay, I mean, this aspect as well of made in China is one that is really cool and that that would deserve like some phases and, and some showcase. Um, so basically then that's how I got the idea of creating like a really high quality Chinese watch brand that would really want to, to celebrate um, the, the, the cultural aspect, the craftsmanship aspect, the, the passion aspect of the of the local watch industry. And I was super lucky because my co-founder, I mean, he's also like a French guy, but he's born and raised in Hong Kong, uh, spent all his life there, as well as mainland China, speaks Chinese. And he, he feels also very strongly about Chinese culture. He feels it's really unfair that, well, no one really knows a lot about it and that often it's basically like summed up to copycats uh, so he, he he kind of identified as well with the mission and, and he joined me on that and so that that's basically how we we got that idea of starting that that watch brand i feel like there's a strange cultural phenomenon at play when it comes to the perception of china as a nation perception of its culture internationally and the perception of the quality of the goods that come out of the country. Now, I've always thought that a lot of the hard-formed perceptions that one nation has of another nation came about because of the very sudden shrinking of the world in the latter part of the 20th century. Prior to global communications and easy travel that we've enjoyed for the majority of our lives, at least, nations were able to exist for millennia in isolation from one another and do very many impressive things on their own without any outside influence. But because suddenly the world was able to look at itself from all angles at the end of the 20th century, whatever any country was doing at that time seemed to form its identity in the minds of everyone looking at it and almost override everything that had gone before. So obviously there are some nations that have had incredible empires in the past and global successes many, many centuries ago that were kind of just ignored at that moment of time, like in the 70s, 80s, or the 90s, when we started to form our global perceptions, even close to home in Europe. You know, the idea of like what it is to be German or what it is to be French or very much what it is to be English or Scottish specifically, our ideas formed quite recently. When we first started to know China as a supplier of goods, it was often these cheaper items or plastic figures or you know components for Western-made appliances that were always seen as, seen as somehow lesser, despite the fact that China as a nation is in possession of one of if not the oldest, one of the oldest cultures and civilizations in the world and responsible for so many inventions. Some of them, like the printing press, for example, we, we ascribe to a European, but in reality, it existed in China many, many years before that. 
do you feel the weight of history on your back trying to change very, very rock solid perceptions that Europeans in particular and Americans have of China with the Atelier One project? I think what we do is at a very, 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 very small scale. So I, I, I don't want to sound like the, the big champion of change because uh, obviously we're like, we are, we are a tiny watch brand. So I, I, I mean, we need to be like honest and upfront about the fact that our impact is, is limited by our scale. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the hope of, of what we are, we are doing with the brand. I mean, partly we, we want to, to contribute to, to changing the perceptions. And I, I think you're like, you are very right in, in your assessment, which is that also like sort of the, the latest developments will always like prime and, and overtake like anything that you may have had before. Um, so, I mean, in, in a sort of like normal and reasonable way, it's, it's true that well, when the country opened up and, and you had the first FDI, it was mostly, I mean, people going there like for, for, for cost advantage because it, it was cheaper to do that. And that sort of like framed perception of, of everything around it and it, the, the, the centuries and, and millenaries of, of history get, get forgotten. In, in a way, that's also pretty much like what, what happened to, to Japan, you know, like, I mean, after the, the Second World War, Japan was, was extremely poor and, and the, the first like foreign investments there were also like cost driven. I mean, it was just cheap to do stuff in Japan and, and Japan had a very bad reputation. I mean, look at Japanese cars in the 60s and 70s that they were seen as like crap cars. And and now though you you see the evolution, you see like Japan is is a, is a synonym for for reliability, for precision, for 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 like very very high quality. Um, so 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 yes, on the assessment, and I think yeah, what we are aiming to do with the watches is to sort of like contribute at our tiny scale and tiny level to to shifting those perceptions um and and yeah hopefully hopefully now on the way we'll we'll be able to sort of yeah pl- play a role in that even though i have to say that then it's it's also like other industries maybe bigger industries that we also like contribute to to shifting the perceptions i think we we see it like a lot those days, especially with cars, with like IT, like we see, okay, there's sort of this accepted rise of like premium Chinese car brand, especially in like the electric realm. And I think, yeah, that, that helps a lot. Likewise with like, yeah, tech stuff, like phones, uh, we see like more and more like Chinese, like premium brands being like seen as, as, as good ones, like all over the world. And that does help is like shifting the, the perceptions. Um, but, but also in a way, like, I think it's like there's, two kinds of perceptions to, to lift. There's one which is about the quality. And, and this, I feel, okay, this is improving quite a lot and because of all those other actors. And, and even within the watch industry, I think more and more watch brands, especially like small ones, are upfront about using components from China and people are kind of like, um, yeah, accepting that. But also there's the, the creativity, like the fact that to say that, oh, okay, like it's besides being made in China, it's also like ideated in China. It's, it's conceived in China, it's designed in China, it's thought in China. And, and this is where I feel, okay, there's actually more work to do. I mean, this is absolutely the most interesting part of it, because as you rightly say, many brands use Chinese components a lot more these days openly than was the case in the past. And a great many more brands use Chinese components without ever mentioning it. Some major Swiss and German brands, of course, as, as you well know, I'm sure, working very closely with those manufacturing companies in China are also outsourcing their components because the quality, well, let's face it, is right up there with anything that can be done anywhere. There's there's no dearth of quality. I think people confuse the fact that because perhaps the cost of labor is lower, 
that the quality is capped in some way, but a lower cost of labor simply means you can get better quality for your money. Now, that's a hard thing to sell in a luxury industry that likes its smoke and mirrors a great deal. But even though you're a small company, as you as you very humbly said, you have made significant waves already. You are really turning attention towards China in a way that I've not seen it been turned in the past. And I think that you're doing a great job of showing the creativity that exists within the nation and the creativity that should be put front and center with your products that are, despite being, well, let's face it, if they're made in Switzerland, they'd, they'd be incredibly expensive, reasonably priced and extremely beautiful. So when did you first meet the people that were able to realize your ideas to that level? And what's your relationship with those artisans like? Actually, I started meeting these people during the, the year and a half I spent in, in Peking University when I was touring the, the country with my mentor. So basically, I think twice a week or, or, or sometimes maybe once a week, but like pretty much all the time, it would just be visiting all those, those key people uh, whether it is in the sort of craftsmanship realm or like watchmaking realm or in the sort of like greater like watch industry realm. So we, we also met like, I don't know, like the big distributors, the big retailers. Uh, we met like the, the government officials in, in charge of the industry. So we really met everyone. And, and that's really like when I, I started like meeting, meeting those people. And, and and then it's it's purely like a network effect. It's like yeah, you you know some people, and then you're looking for something specific, and you you just ask around, and and someone may be able to refer you to someone else, and hopefully as well what you've done in the past, like the what your your products have achieved, the the reputation then speaks for itself, and people are are, are eager to to work with you. So. You, you know, I mean, I explained to you like how we, we came up with the idea of Atelier with, with Wilfried, my co-founder. But then what happened is that he moved to Beijing for his master's. I stayed in the UK and, and we sort of like started working on designs. And then like when we were about like to, to start like doing like prototypes, I was just like, oh, you know what? I mean, oh, I know this guy for like, good like stainless steel case why don't you you go meet him and i know those guys from movements why don't you go meet them and and those were like all the people that well i i met during that that year and a half um and then yeah as you work with some you get to know more get to know more get to know more and now we even have sometimes like craftsmen that come to us and are like oh i, I really like what you do i i, I liked how you, you showcase those guys especially out of china uh because then this has great effects inside China and they're like, oh, can, can we work together? Uh, and, and of course, we're, I mean, we're, we're always really keen to explore. And, um, and, and the beauty of that is that there's actually really a lot and a lot of craft in China. I mean, there's what, what we know, but there's like so much more uh, things that we are not really aware of. So the, the other day, for example, like we had this person who was doing like a handmade gold foil in, in Nanjing who approached us. So basically this guy like receives like pieces of gold and beats them for like eight to 12 hours uh, to make like really, really thin like uh, gold sheets, which are like 0.1 mm and still like flexible and, and not breaking. And, and we had no idea. And we're like, oh, that's that's really cool. Like, you know, we, we get to discover that. We, we get to have those, those people approach us to, to work together. So yeah, that's that's yeah really the, the cool part, the, the fun part. So you're already quite well known in China, but where do you sell most of your watches to? Are you selling them mostly to the West or are they also popular domestically? The biggest market, surprisingly, is the US. And then it's followed by Singapore, Hong Kong, 
the UK and, and then a bunch of European countries, which if you agglomerate them actually is, is quite, quite a bit. Um, we, we, we don't sell directly in mainland China. Uh, the reason behind that is that the channels of distribution and marketing are extremely different, uh, from the channels we may use in, in the rest of the world. So then it, it's a bit akin to like running like two separate companies, uh, which in terms of like effort and, and bandwidth is, is more than what we can handle. We, we tried to actually sell in mainland China back in 2019. Um, and that was, that was a bit of a failure, honestly. Uh, I mean, the, the market was really different back then. Uh, but still, I mean, we, we, we learned a few hard truths. Uh, the first one, which was that the bulk of the Chinese customers, uh, still has sort of like a negative bias for like very premium, uh, domestically ideated and, and made goods. So that didn't help. And then actually the, the cost of, of doing online marketing in China is like prohibitively expensive. And that comes down to, to two reasons. Uh, the first one is that the visibility itself like costs more. Uh, the, the platforms like the, the, the online, like social media just like charge you more, uh, per impression. And then is the, the conversions you get are, are really, really low because you have like very little targeting available. So, you know, you, you run some campaigns on like Meta, Instagram and, and whatnot. You, you can be like super granular as to who you want to reach. There is like almost non-existence. So I remember we would run those campaigns, we'd get like millions of impressions, but like, like five clicks. Uh, and, and, and that was really bad. So yeah, so it's, it's really more expensive to, to sell watches in China. And, and the last bit, which sort of like caused us like to, to not work this time was that, uh, physical retail was extremely important. And unlike countries in Europe, you know, where if you're in one city, you can address most of the demand in China. Like if you want to address the demand, you need to be in like eight to 12 cities. And in each of those cities, you have kind of like local champions, which are, are not the same, like from one city to another. So you need to establish relations with like quite, quite a lot of companies. So it's time consuming. It's, it's a lot of bandwidth. So, so not that, that didn't work out in 2019. And then we sort of like exited, uh, this, but now we are actually selling back in China, but through a retailer, um, who sells mostly like pre-owned independent pieces. So MBNF, uh, work and, and those kinds. And, and he's doing quite well because I mean, he has the audience like cornered and, uh, and he's able to, yeah, to, to sell the pieces well. Um, eventually maybe at some point we'll, we'll try to go back like in sort of like D2C in, in mainland China, but I, I just feel that, yeah, right now, I mean, it's, it's a tiny team. It's, it's four of us. Uh, we don't, yeah, really have the, the bandwidth to, to, to honestly like properly deal with it. Well, this is very interesting that I've never been to China in my life. I know very little about how commercial operations take place there. But I know from my experience with some European companies that they do invest a great deal in advertising in China. So what's the advertising environment like in the physical world over there? Do you see like billboards for Rolex or Tissot or I don't know what brands? Tell me tell me what it looks like to walk around a, a major city in China and tell me which brands are most visible. Yeah, uh, I mean, you do see a lot of those. And I have to say, like, those Western brands make a really, really good marketing job in China. Uh, so much that, well, local customers are, are very, like, uh, sort of, like, negatively biased against, like, domestic premium brands. Um, you know, so you see a lot of billboards, you see advertisement in magazines, uh, you see ads on TVs and on, like, 
some social media networks. But 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 the thing is that you know, like for us, it mattered a lot. This kind of like cost of of visibility of advertising. But I feel like for some Western brands, was like very deep pockets. It's less pressing, less important, uh, so they can afford to like not be that efficient uh, and and really like sort of like flood uh, the, the environment in terms of visibility. Um, so so you see like pretty much like the, the same brands that you see here. You see like I don't know Rolex and then the big brands from Swatch Group, from LVMH, from Caring. I mean, Caring doesn't have any watch brands anymore, but still uh, from Richemont, um, most of them have like flagship in big cities. Uh, which are like very nicely done. Uh, I suppose like really expensive to to operate. Um, so yeah, on environment, I would say it's like pretty similar to here. You have some Western brands which are maybe not that popular anymore in the West, but which are doing really well in China. Uh, one of them, I think, would be Blancpain. Uh, so I mean, Blancpain is, is a major brand here, but still like it's not that popular. But in China, like. They, they do really well. Uh, they have like, I think, two to three flagship stores, which are really nice. Um, I suppose maybe because they did this Chinese calendar that, that helped a lot in terms of like reputation and, and visibility, maybe. It's actually quite intriguing from an advertising perspective. I remember a particular situation I found myself in when I was working for Nomos and we were talking about how to spend our advertising budget to increase sales in the UK, which was my primary responsibility when I first started working for the company. And at the time, we were spending the majority of our budget on full-page adverts in print media, magazines like Salon QP, for example. That was one of our go-tos. And I became quite frustrated with this strategy because I was seeing a lot of tourists come into Manchester, the town I grew up in, from China, buying the major brands like Rolex or Omega or, or even Blancpain for that matter, wholesale, like and going back to China and benefiting from the VAT savings that they made when they crossed the border. And I said to Nomos, maybe it would be worth us forgetting about domestic advertising in the UK and pouring all of our budget into a massive Nomos billboard at Beijing Airport because they recently had opened three new flight paths between Beijing and Manchester daily. And I was thinking, you know what? Maybe the brand needs to be present in China to sell in the UK, weirdly enough. And talking of Western brands that have succeeded in China, despite dipping in Europe, one of the major ones I encountered, to my surprise, while working for Nomos was Titoni, a brand which is practically unknown in Europe these days, because the founders of Titoni very quickly realized in the 60s that if they advertised heavily in China and lent on their Swiss background, they could create a sense of luxury there that was more permanent than the sense of luxury they could create in such a crowded market in Europe. And they have since succeeded greatly in selling watches to that part of the world without even bothering about the Western market. And it raises the question in my mind whether, almost bizarrely, you as a brand that is extolling all the virtues of Chinese craftsmanship and culture and design would have to almost do the opposite to have success domestically build the brand in the West so that it becomes an icon of, of this culture for it to have that same value and clout in the minds of Chinese consumers. Do you think that in 10 years time, for example, if you continue on the trajectory that you are now, you might see that start to pick up because of this reverse transference of luxury perception? 
I mean, <laughs> I would kind of hope so. Uh, but it's true that, like, I mean, there's part of the strategy which is, like, to build reputation and awareness outside of China, which then, like, sort of, like, brings you clothes inside China. Uh, because often what we see is that, like, products or brands which are, like, really well regarded outside of the country, eventually when they, they reach a certain scale, like, the, the fact that they are, like, praised outside is seen as, like, a good sign inside. Um, so, so that's that. But then also, I think at some point, we would just want to, to try to, to venture ourselves within, within mainland China. Um, cause, cause we see like with the, the retailer in Shenzhen that, well, he, he's having like good success. I mean, we, we didn't give him that many pieces, but still he, he sold them out in a day. So definitely there's like, there, there, there's a segment over there. Uh, and, and now the, the sort of like key challenge, the key question is, okay, how do we get to, to reach those people? Uh, in a sort of like effective way and an efficient way, uh, we, which we didn't manage to do beforehand, uh, because of all the, the forthcomings that, that I told you about. But yeah, I'm thinking if, if we give it a try with maybe more resources, more time, more people, more, more budget, uh, maybe, maybe that could work. So yeah, so you'd have the two of them, like the, the work outside of the country. But I also think like at some point you, you really need to have like a, a super like, elaborate and, and well done like mainland China strategy that, that would run inside the country. Uh, so I don't know, you work with some of their like local social media networks like Xiaohongshu, uh, Zhehu, Douyin and whatnot. You, you work with some kind of influencers, you, you, you select some medias, you do events, um, all, all, all the stuff. Um, yeah. Now this might be a, a bit of a tricky question because I'm sure it's quite an expansive answer, but you reference this suspicion almost that domestic customers have to new brands but what is it that the average chinese consumer values above all else is it status uh, like brand recognition or is it high quality watchmaking itself complications is it avant-garde design i suppose there's a, a broad spectrum of, of of consumer types but what do you identify as as the real driver for for purchasing in in china yeah, as you say, there's like a really, really broad spectrum. And I think that the fact that the country evolved so quickly and so much in, in the past, like three decades, uh, doesn't help at all. Um, so you, you have this huge chunk of the market, which is still like about brand name and, and recognition. And I think this can go down to the fact that, I mean, w when the country started opening, it was like an undeveloped country. Uh, it was a poor country and then like uh, very quickly developed and it got much richer and standard of living increased a lot. And and I think like a lot of people therefore like craved uh, that recognition, you know, that sign that, oh, okay, they, they have made it, they, they become like wealthier, their they, they status improved. Um, and, and and those Western brands as well play, played a lot on, on that idea of like status and of like the, the, the brand itself, like, saying something about who you are and what you achieved and and so yeah you have like this is like a very very big chunk of the market still um but what i can see is that especially in like younger like sort of like straight terms uh you see that people are actually getting a bit more focused on the the sort of like genuine story uh behind brands and, and genuine story behind product like and, and by genuine i mean the the one that that happens today like not, not the one that is like rooted like 200 years back and, and and that doesn't 
actually exist anymore. Uh, so, so we see this like cool like taste for like more niche, more like yeah, genuine stuff within like younger people, like younger millennials, uh, a bit in Gen Z, even though like there's some kind of like budget constraints, obviously. Um, so this like for us is quite encouraging. And then the second thing that we see, which is also very encouraging, is that also like parts of the markets are getting more more mature. Uh, so you, you see the emergence and 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 quite a, a strong one of like a lot of like what we would call like very sort of like um, qualified collectors, you know, like uh, people who, who who maybe started with the, the, the quote unquote basics, like the, the Rolex, the, the Pateks and whatnot, and who then get into like very like more niche concepts, more independent brands, uh, the kind of people who buy, yeah, uh, NMPNF and, and uh, work uh, brands that may not be known by like 99.999% of the population, but I will still like be highly regarded within like the horological world because they are great like horological products. And and we see that with those people also like they they tend to understand what we do and they tend to, to like what we do. Uh, so because in a way they're, they're I think like pretty similar to, to the customers that we get outside of China who also like tend to be like, okay, established collectors who are, I don't know, like n- novelty driven, let's say. Um, so, so yeah, so we see the emergence of like those two segments, uh, within the country, which are getting stronger. And this for us is sort of encouraging, but still, I mean, there's the caveat that most of the demand is still like centered around like, okay, what's the brand? What's the pedigree? What's the heritage? Uh, what's the, the fancy glitzy advertising? And I think this is why the the LVs and 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 those like very established Western brands actually like still still do so well. What was the kind of pushback that you received from the Western media, let's say, when you first launched your products? What kind of criticisms and challenges did you face in those early days? People were like very encouraging, like Western media's, like because they thought the concept was maybe very weird, or at least like fairly fairly unique. Like I, I mean, a, a few others like tried to do that before. Like I don't think we're the first ones to have come up with that idea. Uh, you had this company in Hong Kong called the Chinese Timekeeper in the early 2000 who tried to do something similar but execution was kind of lackluster so they didn't work uh you you have like this company called uh celadon uh which does well but like at a very like confidential level which also sort of has this idea um so so yeah so the idea was not brand new brand new but still like fairly unusual no no people were like supportive i think they were a bit dubious uh we we received like i mean we, we asked for feedback like before launching and and the the range of answers we got was like widely different like some people told us that there's no demand for that and some people told us that oh there can be a lot of demand and and that just like led us to think that well actually no one knows because yeah no, no one has really has really done it like at at this level at least um so so let's try so no i mean people were encouraging and 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 pushing us we had like maybe a few like very traditional guy who thought that was a bit of a disgrace but but, i mean you know you 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 have those those people everywhere uh bulk of it was was very supportive does that affect you personally in any way do you feel frustrated sometimes by these negative responses or are they so overwhelmed by positivity that they don't even register for you i mean how how do you take it as as a person 
I, I think the first time, like someone tells you that, like obviously, like you get very angry and frustrated, and you want to prove the person right, and you'll spend a great deal of effort, like explaining, like where why the argument makes no sense. And the second time, you'll be a bit less sort of like active in your response, and the third time even less. And 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 afterwards, you you just get used to it. Uh, so, so now, I mean, I'm not going to say like, it leaves me indifferent. Uh, it, it doesn't. Um, but what it does is that, yeah, when, when I see those kind of like nice, nice comments, which are not rooted in any appreciation of the product itself, because I mean, obviously like some people may like the watch, some people may dislike it and that that's perfectly fine. Uh, but which are just like, oh, it's Chinese. So it sucks. Uh, yeah, those kind of comments, it just like made us feel like sort of like stronger about our mission. We're like, okay, well, definitely there's, there, there, there's still like a lot to achieve because we still get like those kind of comments. Uh, so yeah, so it sort of like really like pushes us to, to, to keep trying like harder and harder. But, um, but no, now we don't get like triggered and, and like really angry as, 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 as it was the first time we received those, those three comments. But I think it's, it's the same with everything, you know, like the first time, like it's always like a big thing. And then when, when you've been like for something like 10 times, 50 times, then, then it's just like business as usual and you, you get like less emotional. Very good. I guess that's the way to be. If you want to run a successful business, you do have to have thick skin. You say there's only four of you officially in the company, but your website is extremely responsive. If people have questions, they can ask a chatbot on the on the site and they get answers very, very quickly. How do you manage that kind of interest? I mean, especially when we're talking about time zones all around the world. Um, so we, we, we are like sort of like split halfway. So m most of the time I'm in Paris, so I can sort of like handle like European, European hours and a bit of American ones. And the, the rest of the team is in Singapore and Shenzhen. Uh, so, I mean, there's some sort of like good complementarity in the hours. Uh, but I don't think the, the chat box is, is the best example because I mean, we, we reply, but not, not all the time on time. M most of the time is like, then you receive an email, uh, sort of like responding back to your query. So yeah, we are, we're, we're not really the, the best. Um, it's something we're trying to work on, but it's, it's, um, I, I don't know, you know, it's like when you create a company, like you'll do a certain set of tasks. And then very quickly it evolves and it's almost as if you're doing a, a new job. And it's, it's something that sometimes can be like a, a little challenging, uh, because yeah, in a sense, you're doing like completely different stuff. Uh, so yeah, as, as we expand, as we grow, like, uh, I, those are things that before we maybe would be able to do and that now we don't really have the bandwidth and there's this whole idea. Okay. Like. Um, how do we how do we build a team? How do we recruit people? How do we hire them, train them? And that's a whole new set of skills which we're sort of like learning like on the spot. And, and sometimes it yeah maybe a bit tricky or maybe a bit time consuming. So um, not 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 necessarily the, the easiest, but but very interesting. I can imagine. Yeah, I'm sure that time is a currency of which you are extremely short, but. Talking of currency, how did you actually found the company? Do you have financial backing from private investors? Is it your money or did you start from scratch and just build up enough cash to propel the company forward? It's mostly our money, but it's not a lot of money. Because, uh, I mean, we were 22 when we started the company. So as you can expect, uh, we didn't have that much financial resources. Um, 
it was just like a bunch of savings from like internships and 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 and, and those kind of stuff. So we we had around like seven thousand each, like uh, so Wilfried and, and myself. So yeah, we started with like fourteen thousand um, dollars, and there was just, um, there was enough for us to do the design, do the prototyping. Um, and eventually like launch a Kickstarter campaign. Obviously without Kickstarter, we would have never been able to, to launch the company. Uh, we barely had enough yet to, to make the protos and, and to get to like the, the starting lane. Uh, but then like Kickstarter enabled us to, well, kickstart the, the company. Uh, also, I don't think we would have been able to even reach that stage w- without like the, the friendship with all the people who helped us because I mean, uh, when we look at what we paid for for prototyping, for instance, it's it's a fraction of what you would usually pay. But people were just like keen to help us, and they were like, "Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, I know you were been for for some time, and I, I like what you're trying to achieve. So, so why not?" And and even you know, like with the press and the media, it's like a lo- lot of the people were like kind enough to to cover us for free and and just talk about us, and and yeah. Uh, that that really helped. Do you find that changing now? You're a little more established. Do you find that media houses are less willing to provide free coverage or are they still keen to get on board with a company that's doing something different and telling a different story? No, they, they are still keen to support, honestly. Uh, but I think it's more like as well, like the, the typology of, of coverage that, that we seek for that, that changes. I feel like whenever we have novelty, like most of the media are still like keen to cover it, you know, as actual coverage of a novelty. So not asking us to, to pay anything, but then as well, like, you know, we, we sort of want to try to have more coverage, like even outside of novelties, uh, sort of like more, more frequent to, to stay on like people's radar, people's mind more. And, and that, well, obviously, cause it's, we, we, we don't bring any news. So yeah, this, this is more like marketing campaigns in a way. So yeah, it is, you have to pay. I think it was more that at the beginning, we were not really seeking that and we were just happy to, to cover our launch and, and that was it. But no, people are, are still supportive. Um, I, I hope that it's, it's because, yeah, the, the watches are, are still interesting. I mean, the watches are very interesting and the story is new. And as a journalist, it's very exciting to have something new to talk about, something to really dig into and explore because a lot of novelties from major established brands are fascinating watches in themselves, you know, beautiful pieces, lovely to talk about, lovely to appreciate, but they pull you in a little less because it's the same old, same old. And what's nice about your communication, at least in the communication that I've read from other media outlets, is that it's very genuine. It comes through top to bottom that you have something new to say, and that's rewarding for us to work on as journalists and also, I think, for readers and listeners to consume. But let's talk about the watches themselves because they're very striking pieces. Do you design them all yourself? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not a designer. I, I have zero talent for, for that, um, unfortunately. Uh, so I, I do the design briefs, the whole direction, but then we work with a set of designers who, who help us like based on the projects. Um, so initially for our first collection, we were working with two designers in Beijing, uh, Liu Yuguan and, and Li Mingyong, um, who at the time were also students, uh, and who actually got to work with us because, yeah, during my, my year there, like I, I met this lady who is like a, a watch design teacher at university. So she could recommend me some people. Um, then we also work with like a designer in Hong Kong named uh, Alfred, uh, who is the one who who designed Perception and who who designed also some of the upcoming projects. And uh, yeah, and 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 also we 
work with another designer. Like she's like a, a Chinese designer, but she lives in, in Switzerland and her name is like Sofan and like we're working on some new collection together. Um, so yeah, so there's a, a network of designers. I feel that uh, as I, I, I know them more, like each of them have their strengths in different kind of like designs. Uh, also they have their taste. So I can feel that, yeah, okay. Some projects, they may be more enthusiastic. Some others that may take more time. Uh, so now also I try to like give the projects to, to the designers. I feel yeah will be like sort of like more, more aligned in terms of strengths with, uh, what we are, we're trying to, to achieve. But it's, it's really hard to find designers, uh, honestly. Um, I mean, first of all, like finding watch designers, like, people who only do watch designs, I think it, well, it's not that easy. Uh, but then like in our requirements, we really need Chinese watch designers because uh, that there's a need for like a very strong, uh, deep uh, cultural understanding uh, and, and finding like Chinese watch designers. I mean, you don't have that many. And then we also want them to have a sort of like very Western product philosophy. Uh, so having worked for Western brands, uh, having like lived and studied in the West, uh, so that even like shrinks your pool further. So there's yeah, very, very, very few such designers um, that we can work with. So give me an idea of what your design brief was that you set out to these design that you sent out to these designers. Um, oh, it's, uh, I, I think it's a bit of a nightmare for them. Uh, no, usually they're like really, really long. So I don't give directions because that's their job. I feel like, you know, like to come up with the actual, like, uh, okay, story and like what the, the thing is going to look like. But I, I don't know. I try to, to give them maybe like objective criteria that they need to meet in, in their design. But I, I give them like a, a lot of such criteria. Uh, so I don't know, like, for instance, like, you know, like if we talk about the case, I'll be like, okay, so. Uh, you need to work with a material that is by itself like value adding. So you can exclude like steel and this and that. And then like, it's great if we can incorporate like one like set of craft within the case and then the shape itself uh, will need to be like uh, sort of like at X percent, like uh, uh, carrying like some, some sort of storytelling. And, and, and then, so they have all these like yeah, criteria and like factors and conditions and then they, they try to work around that uh but but i can feel also it's, it's not it's not very easy for them because I, I give them a lot of constraints and then i'm also like expecting like something like very creative and and very new and and that's that's pretty hard what's your personal favorite element of the perceptions design is it the case the dial the bracelet the buckle give us an idea of what you're most satisfied with it's, it's definitely the dial. Um, I mean, I, I really like well-done dials. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, it's something that can show uh, through how we make our watches with the dial always being the, the centerpiece. Uh, but I mean, obviously the guilloche is nice, but what actually I really like most is the way we, we constructed the, the dial. Uh, because I feel like, yeah, this is a, a very good, like, sort of interpretation of what, like, modern Chinese style could be. So to build that dial, we actually like emulated an ancient architectural principle, which is called Sun Mao. Uh, so Sun Mao is a, is a way of like building uh, where you don't use any nail and glue and you just sort of like imbrick elements into one another. And that's how like in the past for centuries, they would build like 
temples or palaces, or they would just like yeah, put the elements into one another. And so for the dial, we actually follow that. So you have like a main base, and then on that the main base, you have the Gyoshe dial. And in this Gyoshe dial, you have like 12 cutouts. In those 12 cutouts, you have indexes, which are like sort of like imprinting themselves inside that. And then within the indexes, you also have cutouts for like a chapter ring to lock itself into it. Uh, and that I was really happy because I felt, yeah, this is this is a really, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good example of like making something that's like very Chinese, but at the same time, like, you know, like not literal, not like copy pasting like characters or dragon or, or any like stereotypical stuff, uh, but more like really like some kind of deep thinking around an ancient principle, uh, an ancient like set of norms and values. And then how we can apply that to the watch, but more like as a canvas or as a format. Um, so yeah, this is something I was really proud of, uh, the designer, because I thought yeah, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, I can imagine that you're very proud of it because it's, it's beautifully realized. The concept is, is gorgeous. A few years ago, when green dials were starting to become more mainstream, when they first appeared, of course, they were quite a, a radical thing, but then they very quickly became uh, par for the course. I was asked by somebody um, in an interview what I thought the next big color in watchmaking was going to be. And I said, I think that color has kind of had its day as as the real focal point. And I believe that texture on dials is going to be the next big thing that we're going to see over the next decade or so. And we're seeing that now. But one thing that I, I didn't say at the time, but I've always been a great fan of is levels and depth two dials. And if you study, if anyone's not studied the perception dial, because I'm sure that when you first see it, you see the guilloshet and you think that's all that there's going on the dial, but take a good close look. There's some excellent pictures on the website, which you can find at atelierwen.com. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N.com. You can see this uh, interlocking construction that Robin's describing, and it is really something to behold and the kind of thing that you want on your wrist for a daily wear watch that's going to keep you engaged and excited by it for many, many years to come. Talking of those colors, though, you've got some really nice ones. There's some ice blue and some sort of taupe color and salmon colors. How do you apply those colors to the gear shape once it's been completed? Oh, it's, it's actually fairly tricky. We do PVD plating because I think most of the dials are colored like through some kind of like spray painting. Um, but my, my issue with that was that, well, the, the thickness of the paint itself would be too high, meaning that then you'd lose a bit of the texture of the, the metal, which you just like carved. Um, so yeah, so we do like a very, very, very thin, uh, colored PVD plating. Um, but the reason why it's tricky is obviously because the, the surface, you know, is not like flat and smooth. Uh, it's all going up and down and it's, it's very uneven. I mean, yeah, because you, you carved it. Um, so, 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 so it's not very easy. We do have like quite a, a strong failure rate. Uh, what you often see is that, yeah, the, the color kind of like doesn't get like sort of applied like so evenly. And there are some places on the dial where it's like stronger places on the dial where it's lighter. And that obviously doesn't look good at all. Um, so, 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 so not, 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 not so easy. Um, uh, not so easy, but I don't know. We, we didn't want to, to lose yet yeah, the texture of the dial because otherwise you kind of like kill, kill the whole purpose of the watch and, and make it a bit useless. Um, so, so that's why we, we went for it. Um, there are some colors which are easier than others. Uh, 
besides like the, the application. So like blue, salmon, gray, um, kind of like easy to do. But when we tried to do the red for revolution, um, that was like very, very tricky. Because first of all, there are not that many like red, like PVD plating solutions available. Uh, and and you, you, you see it, I mean, it's not something you see so often. And, and B, uh, most of the most of the companies who could do red, like they were doing this kind of like dark red, like burgundyish red. And what we wanted was instead like a super saturated, like ruby red, like something like very, very like strong and almost like screaming. And and this like it took us months to to locate a company who could do it. And and that company was not even in the watch industry. There was a company doing like automotive parts. Uh, and it was like so unusual um, and they were very surprised we wanted to do that uh, that we had to pay a kind of like furnace opening fee because no one else beside us was, was using this color uh, so, so yeah very very uncommon like color color plating for this one and that was for the revolution watch limited edition yeah the red one and actually that's that's something people like don't see but really the the main like difficulty of that watch was really the color plating like the guilty pattern we, we mastered it like fairly quickly and the titanium case and bracelet the, the polishing of the concave bezel i mean we, we we got there but then we just spent months like trying to get that red color and they just wouldn't find or, or they'd give me those like burgundy like oranges which was not really what what the brief was about uh so that was like super tricky and took ages and you plated the rotor in red as well, did you, for that one? Yeah, as well, as well, as well. Uh, but the funny thing is that because the rotor is made of tungsten, um, then the chemical reaction that occurs after plating is different than the one which may occur on the dial. So um, even though we use the same plating solution, uh, then the rotor like, looks slightly, slightly different. Um, but that was more of an issue for the wrist check watch, where for reasons that we didn't really understand, the rotor would turn blue. Uh, so the dial would be fine with the green plating, uh, this kind of like very like pastel jade green plating. But most of the rotors, when we would plate them, they would become blue. Um, so also that kept us occupied for, 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 for some good time for, okay, to find out, okay, how we can make them more green. But even till those days, like they are more green, but if you tilt them a bit, they will look somewhat blue. Um, so yeah, so that's like one tricky stuff uh, uh, that we, we didn't expect we'd have to deal with. But yeah, in the end, we, we found out that, yeah, because the material is different, dial is copper, rotor is tungsten, uh, they don't react the same to, to the plating. Wow, you went through all that and you paid a furnace opening fee just for 100 pieces of a limited edition. Waco must owe you a beer. We didn't really realize that it would be that tricky. Because, I mean, honestly, I mean... You know, like the, the whole revolution project, like I, I met Way in Geneva in April 2022. Perception was not even launched yet. He very kindly like gave me a bit of his time. We talked, we talked, we talked. And then like a few weeks after he called me and he was like, oh, let's do some watches together. And, and honestly, I couldn't really believe it. I was like, we are, I mean, we are nobodies. Like we, we haven't even launched our watch. And this guy is like, let's make 200 watches together. Uh, so we were really like, wow. Um, super like taken aback by, by the trust and, and confidence like he was putting in what we were doing uh, but also we had no idea at all about the complexity so we we're just like yeah choose your pattern choose your color let's find something cool and it was like red we were like oh yeah red 
no issues. We, we, we had no clues. Uh, he could have said like any other colors would have replied the same, no issues. Um, so, so yeah, we didn't really know what we were venturing ourselves into. Uh, turns out it's, it's trickier than, than we thought it would be. Well, it was a excellent, excellent project and a brilliant execution in the end. And I personally love the slight difference in color between the tungsten rotor and the dial. I think the tungsten rotor is a gorgeous color in itself, but congratulations on achieving that bright ruby red for the display. Now let's talk just briefly, because we haven't got long left, about what's coming next. Have we got some new models on the horizon? Yeah, no, we, we do have we, we do have quite a few. Uh, we do have quite a few, but development is, is super is super time consuming, very slow. So unfortunately they're all kind of getting delayed. But in a nutshell, we have like three steps coming up. Um, the first one is a kind of I mean I I don't want to, to give it away, but basically a sort of like over the top uh, version of, of perception. Uh, so with different materials, different dials, and it's, it's going to be quite over the top. You know, a bit like what a, an AP Rayalog concept is to the Rayalog line. Uh, n- not in the dimensions, of course, but more like in, in the in the philosophy of like, okay, this is yeah, the, the sort of like extreme uh, version to it. Uh, so we have that. Uh, we have a chronograph, uh, but which is really special because you have a very, very unique dial, which will be like a, a modern kind of reinterpretation of a very ancient craft. And we're working with two craftsmen at the same time to do this. It's very complex, but also like the movement for the first time will be like hand finished. Um, so we're kind of like taking the craftsmanship aspect besides just the dial, but also to the movement. So that's going to be quite, quite fun. And eventually we are um, working on a kind of like piece that, that is also a bit more like it's a dressy piece. It's like a concept piece. Um, it's going to be like a very, very tiny run, like 15 ish pieces. Um, yeah, uh, more high end than what we do usually. But the goal with that piece is really to, to sort of use it as, as a flagship to, to showcase like what fully handmade in China could, could be about. So we're working with a, a network of craftsmen, of artisans uh, to make this set of watches that, that will be like fully, fully, fully handmade. Like no, 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 no factories involved in that. Just like a bunch of, yeah, qualified craftsmen like doing things by hand. Um, so yeah, this piece like it, yeah, it is, it, it, I wouldn't say it came out of nowhere, uh, but it's, it's, it's quite different from what we've done in the past uh is also very confidential so i don't think it's there to to set a tone of what we'll do in the future but yeah it's more like an, an interesting like side experiment uh, at least from a product point of view i think the, the watches are interesting and, and that should hopefully release like maybe first quarter of next year uh, before watches and wonders i mean hopefully uh, i've been seeing that like for the past like nine months so uh, let's see. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Robin, for sitting down with us and talking to us about Atelier Wen today. It has been very, very, very exciting for me to hear from the horse's mouth exactly what your plans are and exactly what we can hope to see next year as the company continues to grow. If any of our listeners have questions for Robin about the brand or about anything else, then please get in touch with us. You can contact us via our new Instagram handle. That's at therealtime.show. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-T-I-M-E dot S-H-O-W. 
You can contact Alon or I via our emails, either Rob or Alon at therealtime.show or via the contact form on the website, www.therealtime.show. Robin, we'll have to get you back on again next year because I want to hear how the new model is received and I want to get frequent updates of how it's going for Atelier Wen. Thank you for your time. Everyone listening back home, until next time, stay safe and keep on ticking. <laughs>